Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, good morning to you guys here. Good morning to those who are watching online. Glad you can join us. Let's pause, let's pray, and we'll get started this morning. Lord God, we are grateful for an opportunity to put time aside where we can focus on you, where we can push pause on on the other things happening in life and push play on connecting with you. And I pray that that would happen here this morning that our time would be enriched because it's time spent with you. In whatever ways you desire to work within our hearts, may we be open to that work. We welcome it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of announcements. One, if you would like to help out with either the children's ministry or with even... uh, the technical things that we're doing here, because we're doing those things pretty regularly, uh, please let us know. You can uh, message us through any of our social medias, email us. Uh, All those things are found on our website, thegenesisstory.com, and it would be definitely appreciated. You can also uh, give. Here are the ways that you can give found on the website. And so I encourage you, to help in any of these ways as you can. If you guys could have seen the sad face that Gwen gave me wanting to go to to church this morning. She's like, is there a children's church? And Brian is over there right now. Yeah, the kids, you guys can go over there now. Brian, Super B is being a super guy. Good job, buddy. Guillermo, how are you, man? So anyway... Just let you guys know those things are happening. Um, Anyway, glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, We are continuing through the book of Genesis. And what I have been doing with the book of Genesis is I'm not going through verse by verse in the whole chapters. The, The breaks in Genesis are by genealogies, and there's 10 of them, basically. And so I am trying to cover the topics in those breaks. And so I'm definitely not doing an in-depth study of the book, uh, but hopefully you still get a sense of what is taking place. And and I'm trying to highlight some things that I think are important. And one of the things I want to back up and review is remember that the book of Genesis is one of five books of the Torah. And so it is not a book that is just in itself. And not only that, these aren't separate stories. 
In other words, here's a story. It's not like what is Aesop's fables where you just read a story, here's a story, here's a story. This is all moving in a direction and they all go together. And if you don't read it in that way, when you get to some of the other stories like Abraham offering Isaac up, you're gonna have some real problems if you don't have the history of where it's coming from. It's also important to remember that this book is written at a later time when the Israelites have come back from Babylonian captivity, are looking back at who they are. And that's important because prior to the captivity, their nation was founded on, we have a temple, we have a king, and our God is reigning through these means. And when those things collapse, they were questioning who are we as a people? And they are retelling their story, looking back. And remember the central part of the book of Genesis and the Torah is the law that was given on Mount Sinai. And so everything is looking forward towards that and also looking back in light of that. And we see glimpses of that. We saw glimpses of that with Cain and Abel when Cain and Abel offered a sacrifice to God and one was accepted and one wasn't. How do we know what was to be offered? Well, Cain's was not the first fruits and Abel's was. How did they know that? That's something that's found in the law. And we're gonna see that again as we go on today because today we are gonna talk about Noah and the ark. And before we step into that, I, I wanna ask you guys a, a question here. And there's gonna be time after our time here, me speaking, to ask some more questions. But one of the things I wanted to ask is, what has the story of Noah and his ark meant to you? In other words, when you read it, how did you read it? Did you read it as a literal event that took place? Did you read it as uh, something other, as telling a story of God's faithfulness? What has been your experience with the book of Genesis regarding Noah and the ark? Anyone want to chime in? There's no wrong answers. This is just asking what you have thought. The crickets. <laughs> I think in the past I took it literally. Okay. And I still think even when I took it literally, I could see obviously the rescue and the mm -hmm. faithfulness of God. And now I'm moving towards the symbolism of the rescue. Okay. I, I think for those of you who maybe didn't hear online, uh, at one time it was taken literally, but definitely seeing stories and and of God's faithfulness in it, and now seeing a lot more symbolism. I think I've been the same way. I've, I've had an evolution through this book of growing to understand it, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about it, because I think for some reason, the most popular parts of the Bible are the ones that we have the hardest time reading through ancient eyes. And I think this is one of those stories where our looking at it from a modern view of trying to tell us how everything happened overrides some of the stories that are being told where we lose the meaning of what's actually being said in the book. And 
it, it comes to a place where I'll see a picture of Noah and his ark. Go ahead and show that picture, Rick. I'll see something like this, right? And this is like in every Sunday school. You see a picture of Noah's ark and everyone's happy. The fish are even smiling in, in this picture. And remember, this is a story about the annihilation of humankind, but it's in every children's church classroom. When I see this picture, you know what picture I think? I think this picture. This, right? It's like, are we just ignoring what just happened? Right? Thank you, Rick. Because we are talking about this horrific event as if everything is okay and everyone's smiling and we're just going to move on and let's scratch that you know, round and let's go for round two. And I think this is where seeing through ancient eyes can help us understand some of the points that are being made. And the first thing that I want to talk about of importance is that Israel's ancient neighbors had similar stories about floods. All the ancient neighbors to Israel had similar stories regarding floods and Israel's flood story was written after these stories. And so we have stories that are more ancient than Israel's regarding the flood. And then we have Israel's almost retelling of the story. And why does this matter? For one, it tells us that there actually was some kind of catastrophic flood in that region. Archaeologists say that around 2900 BCE, there was some kind of flood in that area. And and secondly, the ancient stories do not try to explain what happened. All the ancient stories talk about why it happened. And again, this is important because that was the mindset. They did not see the earth as a blue marble hurling through space. That's not the world they understood. And so how nature worked was very mysterious to them and not trying to figure out what's going on here. Where's this water coming from? What is the temperature? What are these clouds? Those things weren't a part of that thought process. It was more of why is this happening? So why does the flood happen in these ancient other stories? Well, in one story... The God of weather, who's called Enril, he wants to destroy humans. Get this, there's no sugarcoating this because they're making too much noise. That's, that's the gist of it, right? And, and so they're making too much noise, but a man named Atrahasis escapes by building a boat in order to save humanity. And and so that's one of the stories. Another story, there's this man, Gilgamesh, who was the king of Uruk. He was an actual king who lived around 2500 BCE. But then the story takes a turn because he was said to be part man, part God, and he wanted to find out how to obtain immortality. And he found that he could ask a man who is similar to the Noah figure, how he obtained his immortality. And he says he did it with the help of one of the other gods. He escaped a great flood and the wrath of the gods by building a large boat and by loading it with lots of animals and his family. 
He was given specific dimensions of what the boat was supposed to be and to seal it with pitch and tar. And the boat then landed on a mountain as the flood subsided and he released birds out to see if they would return or if they would find a place to land so that they would know it was safe. Does that sound familiar? Now, there are probably lots of stories floating around, (laughs) pun intended, but this one could have been flagged as plagiarism in a lot of ways because there are so many similarities. So what, what's the point? The point I wanna make isn't that this one's right and this one's wrong. It's that these stories aren't about reporting the facts of history. None of these stories are. They're not trying to give you factual information. They're telling a story. It's a platform to talk about how they saw the world and their place in it. For the Israelites, it became a way of talking about their God, what made him different from the other gods, and why he should be worshiped and he alone. And we all interpret the world through our cultural lenses, right? When the tsunami hit Indonesia, I know that there were Christians I heard saying, well, this happened because they are worshiping false gods. And the same thing was said about Hurricane Katrina. You know, it's because the United States has left, you know, God as a a nation. All these ideas of why these things happen seem to come up at these times because we want to know. And what we don't understand is we are bringing a definition to our understanding of God based on our culture and the things that are happening to us. So what is the difference between the God of Israel and these other gods that have their stories. What what is the difference in what they're trying to tell us? Turn with me to Genesis chapter six. I'm gonna start at verse one. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, there were the heroes of old, men of renown, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is a curious passage indeed. And I have to tell you that I have changed my understanding and I throw that out front because what I'm giving you isn't, this is how it is, people. This is just some thoughts I have on this, right? Who are these sons of God? 
What is this talking about? Well, in Job, it's referring to angelic beings, right? There's other passages where it seems to be about these heavenly beings. And we see this term used in other places referring to that. And Nephilim can mean giants. It it can also mean kings or, or people who are royal. And so it seems that the giants were produced because of this union. But then I thought, that's just weird and doesn't make sense, right? Because that's like mythology. And so at one point I heard someone, probably Chuck Missler or something, you know, talk about Nephilim and talk, talk about all these things. And I was like, oh, wow, that's bizarre. That's crazy. But then I started thinking, okay, how does a flood stop that from happening again? What is God doing that's saying, okay, yeah, we're going to make sure that comes to an end. How does that stop it? Because I don't see anything that says, okay, that can't happen anymore because what, are all the sons of God wiped out too? Or what's going on there? So then I reevaluated my thinking and the sons of God I took to mean the line of Seth. Because remember when Seth was born, the, the child who replaced Abel basically, then people started worshiping Yahweh again. And so I thought, well, the line of Seth is the sons of God and the daughters of humans is the line of the Canaanites. And so I, I thought, yeah, that can work, but it doesn't really. I mean, the language here is pretty strange and it seems as if there is this idea, the sons of God, these heavenly beings or something have this relationship with these women and the Nephilim are from them and this whole thing is taking place. So here I have the sons of God 3.0, okay? Here I am today. And we have to look at this through ancient eyes, right? And it's important to understand that the ancient world at this time had lots of stories of gods interacting with humans, It was like this revolving door between humans and the divine realm, where even in Greek mythology, we know that's how Hercules was born, right? I mean, these things all happen because of this interaction between the gods and humanity. And we have seen that these gods created men, at least all these other gods, to serve them. We saw that in the Babylonian story of creation, how the the gods created men to basically do their grunt work. And even in the story we told where gods were upset with men because they were making too much noise, right? They, They were like Grinches looking down on Whoville Earth and, you know, wanting to to stop and wipe them out. And I think what is taking place here is something really huge. I think it's one small step for man, one large step leap for mankind. I, I believe that the Jewish faith is moving forward and saying, this is not how things happen. And they are taking this, striking it off the board. There is no interaction of the divine. It is out of God's order, the order that we have been talking about in Genesis where he made everyone after its kind, after its kind, after its kind. This does not fit in that order. And so... It's not saying that this is true or not or why this can't happen again. It just declares a final judgment on the matter. 
It's just saying God ain't going to do that. And it ends here. And so I think the flood is partly a response to this disregard for the order that God has set up. It is their way of confronting all the ideology about the gods converting with people. And then in verse five, it says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And what we're doing here is seeing the reversal of Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1, God saw the the chaos, the tohu bohu, right? It, It was empty and chaotic, and there's a reversal here because God brought order into the empty chaos, and here mankind is bringing chaos into God's order. And so there is a reversal that's happening here. And then in verse six, it says that God regretted that he made human beings on the earth. God's acting like he did in the Adam story where he was walking in the garden, where he was interrogating, who told you not to eat of that? Who who did this? And so we see this element of interaction with God that we saw early on. So it's time to, wipe the slate clean and press reset on the cosmos. Noah, however, is righteous and blameless. It says it in verse six or verse nine of chapter six and verse one of chapter seven. There's no indication or, or no telling of why he's considered that. We don't know why, but he and his family get to escape. Every other human being drowns along with the animals except those who come on board the ark. And so again, it's got this understanding that is very different than those of the neighbors and the things that they told. And this is where we have to table our modern Christian point of view because truthfully, here God looks more like Megatron than the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, really, this is just different. Is there no other way? Is there nothing else that can be done? All people, period? You know, I have grandchildren. One's six, one's four, one's two, and one's gonna be here in two months. Are are they just wicked continually? Sometimes maybe I'll give it to you, right? But all the two-year-olds, all the babies, all the four-year-olds, everyone all the time, Right? There's these questions that our modern mind comes up with, but that is not what the story is addressing. And so when we start entertaining these thoughts, we are deviating from the intention of the story, and that's why we have a struggle with it. That's why these things don't jive. And God becomes, you know, he's regretting. Does God regret? Well, he's trying to tell a story, and it's not about this the way we think and how we think. Was there no other way? Ancient Israel, along with other ancient cultures, had to explain these kind of cataclysmic events like a flood. The explanation is not meant to be historically accurate, but is revealing in how they saw their God and their place in his creation. How does this change happen? 
It happens by them telling a story. How does change happen in society? I remember, dating myself here, I used to be able to jump in the back of a pickup truck and drive to the beach with the adults. And we'd sit there with our pillows and our little boogie boards and things. I don't know if we had boogie boards, but whatever we had. And we'd all be piled in the back of the pickup truck going down the 605 freeway. I remember when it used to be okay to smoke in restaurants and on airplanes. I remember flying to China one time and they were smoking like chimneys. I remember, oh my gosh, I think I smoke now too. And what changed, right? The change didn't happen overnight. It happened incrementally. It happened slowly where we had a different perception of things and took a step forward where pretty soon cool was replaced with dangerous. Oh, it's cool to ride in the back of your parents' pickup truck. Now it's dangerous. And when that perception overrode the other one, things changed. And so now if you see someone riding down the freeway in the back of the pickup, it's like, oh man, what's wrong with those parents? Right? Or before it was cool, now they're going to call CPS on them. Because there was a change, but it happened gradually. The God of Israel is bringing about a huge change in the thought of who God is overall. The God of Israel isn't grumpy or petty. He has standards that humans who are made in God's image and likeness are to uphold. So when man's thoughts are evil continually, God reacts in response to man's failure. Right? And it's a huge shift from God being upset because humanity has the radio on too loud to being one where humanity is responsible for their behavior, just like Adam was, just like Cain was, and now humanity is. As opposed to God will do what he wants and your actions are incidental. That's a huge leap forward. And I think something is happening. Again, the Israel's looking back at who they are through their law, saying this is how we are defined by this order that God has given us. Remember, the law is what defined them as a nation, not their architecture, not their military. It was their law. And so they are going back and they are saying, this is the God we believe in. And when this catastrophic event happened, it is because humanity was responsible for their behavior. It was their way of explaining who their God is and who we are, not trying to bring a historical event and all that's happened. They have no idea, I don't believe, how these things happen. For them, the earth was flat and the heavens were filled with water. That blew up there was water and God opens windows and water comes down. That's a different world. But that's the world they lived. That's the world they understood. And that's the world they're trying to present their God in. And we can't fault them for not having telescopes and understanding the universe as we do. We have to read with their understanding of how things are. Now, this step isn't as far as I would like to see it go. 
right? It's not as far as Jesus makes it, but is definitely incrementally moving humanity forward. And the same thing is happening with this revolving door between heavenly beings and mankind. This passage is shutting the door on such nonsense and saying no more. And I know we'd like things to be nice and neat and clean, but it just isn't. It's more like how life is. I would love it if it was just all, here's all the factual information, here's step one, step two, step three, and it was clean and everything made a whole kinds of lot of sense, but that's just not how things work sometimes. And we're left with what we have here and moving forward, the change is slow. And sometimes it takes a flood to awaken me to the reality that I'm living in. And sometimes I don't change until the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of change. How about you guys? Sometimes it it takes these kinds of events to waken a society to what they think and how they live. And so now this story is being told and is doing just that. And again, we can talk more about the details on this later if you want to. But I want to point out again that this story is being told while looking back and holding on to their present identity while doing so. They're looking back, but they're holding on to who they are as the people of Yahweh through the law that they were given. And we see that take forward, take place. And we also see that in chapter 7, verse 2. Notice it says, To Noah, God is speaking and says, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. It repeats that again later. What is an unclean animal and what is a clean animal? Well, that's defined in Leviticus. What's the purpose of the clean animal? Those are used for offerings and sacrifices. You have to take more of those because you're going to use some of those to offer to God than the other ones that you're not going to use. How did Noah know that? Well, he's being told that by the story looking through the law backwards. And that's part of how we know when the story was written because of these kinds of things. We also know by the language. Again, these other stories were told in an older language than the Hebrews. And so we have all these things that are clues telling us about where they are and what they are looking towards. The story ends by God leaving a rainbow as a sign that he will never destroy the earth like this again, which sounds a little bit like God is sorry for having gone a bit overboard. Really? Right? I mean, it kind of does. I regret that this has happened. So I'm going to do this. But remember, the rainbow isn't the stuff that precious moments are about. The rainbow symbolizes a weapon. It's the bow for a bow and arrow that is being hung up. God is hanging up a weapon. God's bow of warfare, displaying the bow in the sky after rain means he's hanging it up. No more warfare against his creation. Isn't that different than the pictures we see of Noah's Ark and the children? It's like, oh, there's the bow. Oh yeah, that's the weapon God used to wipe out everything, right? Again, a story is being told. And we'll see 
that beginning with Abraham, God will soon reveal a different strategy for addressing the problem of humanity. Because you would think after this, things got all better. Good. He pressed reset. You know, it's like I've rebooted. I reloaded Windows on my computer. It will be better. I don't have Windows anymore, so I haven't had to do that in a while. But I got a clean system now. Everything should work smoothly. And immediately there's a glitch, right? I mean, it took only six chapters for God to have to wipe out the world. It only takes one chapter for things to fall again. And so in chapter nine, starting at verse one, it says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and the dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, dominion over all creation. This is creation 2.0, right? This is God starting all over. And then immediately in the same chapter, we see signs of trouble. Things go sour again. Go to verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, not ham, that's the meat. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Jephthah's territory. May Jephthah live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Jephthah. Does the act of Ham... Noah's youngest son really deserve a full-blown curse? And why are Canaan's descendants doomed to be slaves? Why are the sons of Ham the ones who have to bear the burden of their father? It's interesting that the word Shem is where we get our word Semitic. It's the derivative where it comes from. So the Canaanites, as a people, are cursed because their ancestor, Canaan's father, Ham, saw his father, Noah, drunk and naked. It's a strange direction to go, right? Can we all agree this is bizarre, right? Again, we have to have ancient eyes and we have to be looking at it from a people looking back through their history to an event. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And we have to remember that. It's part of Israel's story being told from later. The Canaanites, which we will hear about all throughout their journey, especially to the promised land, right, are going to play a major role in Israel's story as their arch enemies. 
They live in the land God promised Israel through Abraham. They are the people God commands the Israelites to exterminate after the exodus. They will be a thorn in Israel's side until finally the monarchy starts to take place. And there is a contrast here to how Ham reacted to that of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve saw their nakedness, they were ashamed. When Ham saw his father's nakedness, he told his brothers. And that's because he's acting like a brute. There's no shame. He has no shame. He has no regard. See, all these things is Israel telling their story about how their God is different than the other gods of the nations. It is also how they explain why the hated Canaanites deserved everything they got, including being violently driven from their homelands so they could be given to the Israelites. They have been a cursed race since the beginning because Ham saw Noah's nakedness. If we don't see it in ancient eyes, this just seems crazy. What do we do with this? On one hand, we're seeing this huge leap forward in an understanding of what God is not like. God does not have this revolving door between divine beings and humanity interacting in sexual ways and all this. That doesn't happen. This is order. God is not some cantankerous old man going to curse everyone just because he's angry. No, he's putting responsibility and raising the level of man's dignity and responsibility to the image of God and his creation responsible over it. That's huge. But then on the other hand, we have, you know, these Canaanites. They're just awful people because, and they go back to this event and justifies them ridding the land of them because of Ham seeing their, his father naked. Maybe the Canaanites were terrible people. Maybe there's more to this story that isn't told here, but what we have here is what we have to deal with. And maybe I can relate a lot more to this of making a change, but... Maybe that change isn't far enough. Or, or, or maybe I, I don't understand the time and the land that they were living in. But we do see another change is made, a, a further evolution, a further step of change. Even in the book of Jonah, when he looks at Nineveh and he has mercy on them or tells Jonah to have mercy on them. Shouldn't I not care for these people who don't know their right hand from their left? We see even more of a change in the person of Jesus who says, love your enemy as yourself. And so we see this growth that is taking place. And again, this is a contrast that I see in our lives, in society, in my own life, where I make a change 
but maybe it's not far enough. Or, or maybe I'm, you know, we, we've done this with our children where sometimes it's like, okay, you know, how much do we, we show grace and mercy and how much do we show responsibility and accountability? And when do we show one and when do we show the other? And it's just not simple. And life is just not simple. And this story is just not neat and clean. There's no tying a pretty bow on it and saying, there, there's the answer. There is movement forward and there is holding on to things things that are just dark and difficult to grasp hold of, especially now. And you're going to find that in scripture. You're going to find how they treat slaves. And they, they talk about laws given to how you conduct you know, yourself with a slave and they're still treated like property. Is that okay? Well, no, not today because we have moved forward from the time where they were. And thank God we have. And so we look at this and we say, wow, this is great movement forward, but man, it's not quite far enough. And it's all being told to us in these stories that I find captivating and revealing that I identify with today, even though they were written so long ago. And I hope it challenges us to continue growing, learning, and moving forward and wondering, maybe am I stuck? Maybe am I holding on to a lens that still is holding some things that shouldn't? Maybe there's still growth, I know there is, that needs to take place in me, and I don't want to be blind to it. And that's why I lean towards Jesus, because that is the clearest expression of God that I know and how he lived and who he was gives me the clearest picture that I know. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much more here that I didn't touch on And I hope the things that we did touch on can provoke us to conversation, to thoughts, and to inquiry. Lord, I pray that it would be useful for us in our growth, not only as individuals, but as a a people, as a, a community. We would learn how to engage with the difficult and the struggles that we find in our life and even here in Scripture. May it produce depth in conversation and not just a surface explanation of how things are to try and make things nice and tidy. Thank you again for allowing us to look at these ancient and sacred texts and to wrestle with them, Lord. And help us to do so through ancient eyes so that we can understand what the writers were trying to get at so that we can have that discussion and have it honestly. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May we sense and follow the pull of God to move our lives forward. And may we not be blind to the hindrances that will keep us from doing that. May Jesus be our guide. 
God bless you guys. Thank you guys for watching online again. For those of us here, I'd love to have some more conversation about this with you guys. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to the Genesis podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.